0: Welcome to another episode of Neuropodcases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Neuropodcases. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Rajith de Silva who is a consultant neurologist working at Queen's Hospital, Romford. Is alongside being a general consultant neurologist. He has a specialty interest in neurogenetics, neurodegenerative disorders, as well as ataxia. Uh, thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. And, um, and thanks for inviting me along. It's a great pleasure. Um, the topic that I'd like to discuss today is patients who present to clinic with a progressive cerebellar ataxia. Um, and really what I wanted to do was just get your approach to a patient who presents in this manner, Uh, with some practical tips on how you would approach these cases. So to begin with, I'll just describe a brief case vignette uh, of a typical referral that you might see. So you have a 50-year-old male who's referred to clinic with a progressive history of difficulty walking. Having previously walked independently, over the course of 18 months, he's noticed his gait has deteriorated to the stage of now requiring two walking sticks for assistance. Alongside this, he's noticed slurring of his speech. And people have commented that he sounds drunk, despite having been abstinent from alcohol for many years. His medical history is largely unremarkable, aside from history of type 2 diabetes, which is on metformin. But he's not on any other medications. Systemically, he's well, with no fevers, weight loss or headaches. He's an ex-smoker, having stopped five years previously, as well, and has a 20-pack year history. So his cranial nerve dem- examination demonstrates gaze-evoked nystagmus, with cicadic intrusion of smooth pursuit. His speech is noted to be dysarthric. He has a broad-based gait and cannot heel-toe walk. His upper limb demonstrates pass pointing and dysdiadokokinesia. His reflexes are brisk and has equivocal plantar responses, but his sensory examination is normal. So just to begin with, the referring doctor mentions that they suspect the patient might have a cerebellar syndrome. Based on what you've heard there is. would you agree with this? And and I guess, what are the other clinical presentations that could potentially mimic a cerebellar syndrome?
1: So, um, as you said, John, this is a fairly, I suppose no case is typical, but this is, I suppose, a very representative um, type of uh, case that one might uh, encounter in uh, in the clinic. And as you also said, um, there are a number of uh, causes of ataxia. So ataxia is really, I suppose, although we tend to, Use it as shorthand for uh, as a diagnosis, uh, but it actually is—it's—it's it's a symptom, um, and um, so there's a variety of conditions that can uh, present with the ataxia, and, and I'm sure uh, you and the audience will be very familiar um, with uh, you know strokes, uh, multiple sclerosis, tumors, uh, and, and so on and so forth. There's also perhaps slightly um, more rare uh, causes um, like uh, toxin. Um, related uh, forms of ataxia, um, and and, uh, that includes, of course, uh, toxins uh, administered by us uh, in the form of medication, phenytoin being one. I think it's probably useful right at this point, uh, just mentioning alcohol, because I think um, many of us in the field um, feel that this is uh, sometimes uh, overstated as being causative uh, in in, uh, in In ataxia and uh, there there are numerous cases, including in my own practice, where one has assumed that alcohol is the cause, but actually there's been uh, a more responsible cause um, which uh, which has been kind of uh, neglected uh, because of the assumption that individuals are i mean i 'm not for a moment arguing that alcohol isn 't an important cause of mm. cerebral ataxia, but I think it 's always worth uh, looking under the surface and to see whether there may be. An alternative course, especially if there are added features in the neurological examination, which might raise. the course, where we will, of course, be talking about some of these things.
0: Mm -hmm. I've given you a very brief history there. Um, Are there any? important bits of the history that you'd want to clarify?
1: So um, I, I suppose one of the, um, the key features in this particular history, um, in addition to the fact that he's a, a man presenting in mid-age, relatively, I suppose, for degenerative courses in general, it's relatively unusual age of presentation, is the rapidity of the progression. Uh, 18 months, I think, um, for someone with ataxia, ataxia is, is pretty rapid uh, to the point uh, of requiring um, two uh, walking sticks to help him uh, mobilize. So I think that uh, itself, I think, is of interest and, mm-hmm. and, and perhaps should, should focus our thinking uh, a, a little more. But there are more uh, uh, particular features uh, as well. Again, combining this with perhaps some of the more rapidly progressive forms, one um, uh, be thinking about a condition, uh, uh, neurodegenerative uh, process such as multiple systems, atrophy, um, type C. And there, I think it's particularly important to ask about um, uh, uh, complaints such as impotence um, and postural hypertension uh, Mm -hmm. and and, and even even, uh, bladder disturbance. So that's worth asking about. Again, another cause of relatively rapidly progressive form of um, cerebral ataxia would be um, a paraneoplastic uh, form and there are systemic features such as weight loss um, and so on may be um, worth asking about. Again, in this sort of broad sweep that one, one's carrying on, it's always um, worth inquiring about systemic features, you know, the, the systems inquiry that um, medical students are, are taught to uh, undertake. Uh, so in addition to things like weight loss, you know, are there features that would suggest hypothyroidism, uh, vitamin deficiencies as well, B12. Uh, folate and so on. Um, we, we would of course be doing um, uh, testing for these specific, but it's it's always worth asking about things like
0: yeah. that. And um, the the examination is quite brief. Uh, what I've given you there. Are there any other examination findings that you specifically look for in cases like this in clinic, or or that you find a particularly high yield um, when localizing to a cerebellar disorder? I, I think
1: actually, to be honest, it's a fairly comprehensive um, examination as far as the um, um, as the uh, as ataxia uh, as far as ataxia is concerned but there's no there is a, a, a lesser yield, but nevertheless it 's still worth undertaking a sort of you know the the full neurological examination um, although again you picked up most of the features there that one might uh, be interested in, like uh, the reflexes plant responses um, and perhaps the and, and, and the sensory examination the um there are uh, I suppose two other main things, though, that I would um, uh, like you guys to think about. Um, I think fundoscopy um, may be of some value. Uh, for example, in the, there, are, there is a form of dominant ataxia uh, associated with uh, macular degeneration. So the patient is likely to have had some visual complaints, but nevertheless, fundoscopy may be revelatory in that case and showing. Um, uh, pigmentation and so on. Obviously, this is of value uh, in um, mitochondrial diseases sometimes. Um, but optic atrophy can also be valuable, uh, for example, if you're looking at uh, cases of um, uh, Friedrich's ataxia, albeit it's a late feature. Um, so I, I would include fundoscopy as part of your sort of key mm. uh, ataxia uh, uh, examination. The other thing um, which is of growing importance Um, is is related to an entity that has been genetically confirmed recently called CANVAS. Um, And uh, although the jury is out as to exactly how common a cause of ataxia this is, um, there are these um, particular eye tests that one should do. Um, There's this um, uh, procedure called the visually enhanced uh, oculoclephalic reflexes. So essentially what you do is you uh, look at a target and ask the patient to Focus on that and you move uh, or ask him uh, or her to move the head uh, in either direction. And you can also do it um, by move, uh, asking the patient to focus on your nose, say, and then moving the head. Um, and the other thing uh, that would also show this uh, uh, vestibular reflexia is head thrust, the kind of test that you would do with vestibular neuronitis. So mm-hmm. moving the head um, uh, briskly to the right and the left, asking the patient to look straight ahead. Uh, these um, are abnormal in canvas, um, so that that may be a useful pointer. So I think um, broadly, I think this examination has been quite quite thorough, but uh, I would probably just add in those uh, two bits to the examination.
0: Great. And then um, you kind of alluded to this with some of the other answers already, but um, just thinking about this broadly as a patient who's presenting as a cerebellar disorder, are you able to share how you would approach this as a sort of diagnostic problem in clinic? How, how, do, you sub, how do you categorize this and um, work through the, the potential causes? So um, this
1: is um, what I'm, I'm really enthused about in this field, is that it's, it's a beautiful combination uh, of um, your uh, clinical appraisal of the situation, uh, your ability to elicit the key features and then combining it with your knowledge about what may be underpinning uh, the the patient's uh, progressive ataxia. And essentially, I think there are two main questions to answer. Firstly, what age has the patient presented uh, at? uh, Because that determines the the main differentials. Um, And then secondly, uh, what is the rate of progression? Uh, And my approach um, really, although there are these basic tests that you would do, like, for example, the blood tests and uh, perhaps a chest X-ray, um, uh, uh, and and of course, crucially, an MR scan of the brain. Um, thereafter, I think a lot of the testing that one would do would be determined by the, the answers to these two, two uh, key questions. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're dealing with a young child uh, uh, I presume this uh, the, the audience here are going to be predominantly adult neurologists, but nevertheless, in the pediatric age group, the differential diagnosis is very, very different to the w- one that one would be dealing with. Say you were uh, in, a, in a much older individual, say in their seventies or eighties, uh, mm-hmm. and that's self-evident. Um, and
0: what, what are the what are the investigations that you would be asking for in a in a case like this? What are the things you wouldn't want to miss? So I think um, here
1: there's a bit of a trade-off uh, between there may be some very rare causes, which although uh, are rare, nevertheless, um, there's a, they may be potentially reversible or treatable. So there's a high premium for diagnosing them. Um, conversely, um, there may be degenerative or indeed genetically mediated forms of ataxia, well. whilst there is some degree of... Um, a fulfillment and um, sort of you know you know you can give the patient an answer and so on nevertheless the the speed at which one gets to the diagnosis is less important mm. so i think you need to again keep these two uh, things in mind i would probably for example depending on the individual concerned and perhaps we can come back to this uh, man uh, i would have said that at his age i mean one would be thinking about uh, something like MSAC, but equally, um, it would be uh, uh, really uh, tragic to miss uh, a paraneoplastic cause. I think even though that is relatively less likely, I would probably push that up the investigation uh, pathway, uh, because that's really an important diagnosis to make if you can, because um, if you can diagnose it early enough, you might even be able to um, prevent the progression. you could certainly cure him of his cancer and hopefully prevent the neurological disabilities um mm-hmm. getting worse and worse. So um so that would be something that I would probably do. But in terms of investigations, um there are these sort of you know people think about first and second line and then third line investigations. So to start off with I would certainly do things like vitamin B12, folate, thyroid function again. The likelihood of these being responsible is relatively low, um, but you might um, still um, uh, uh, find some, and it may be worth correcting. Um, I would then um, almost uh, I, th- I think an MRI scan of the brain um, is mandatory um, in, in, the, in in this uh, population of patients, um, and um, and then I'll come to the, uh, the, the the and then I'll come to some points associated with that. Um, and also, some I'm uh, not infrequently organise an amount of the cervical spine at the same time because that again can give us some clues. Um, and then, um, as I said, uh, he is a, a, an ex-smoker, so you might want to think about doing a, a, a chest X-ray or better still a CT a scan of his chest and even of his abdomen and pelvis as well. Uh, as you know, sometimes with these paraneoplastic cases, you need to if your suspicions are. Uh, high enough you might also need to do an fdg pet because the, the responsible lesions may be very small and easily missed um, mm-hmm. and there are also of course a company blood tests uh, to uh, look for the the responsible um, paraneoplastic antibody
0: what, what is it you're looking for with an mri in these sorts of cases so
1: frequently all it does is it might show a, 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 a subtle uh, sort of a degree of cerebral atrophy which is hasn't really taken you much further. But I think the, main, the the most important reason for this is, of course, looking for a, a structural cause. So, you know, you want to exclude a tumour, obviously, but also conditions like multiple sclerosis. Um, however, it's it's always a good idea, I think, to um, have a second look at the scan, even though the report might say well, there's a mild degree of cerebral atrophy, because it might give us additional clues. So, for example, you're probably familiar with this, um, uh, the hot cross bun sign that you get with multiple atrophy type C. And, and I'm, I, I mean, even resp- uh, quite experienced general re- uh, radiologists have sometimes not commented on this. So it's worth um, looking for. And sometimes it's only a hint of it. And the sign becomes more evident only when you've repeated the scan, say in about six months or an, uh, or a year. Mm. Additionally, I've already also mentioned the value of doing the, the MR of the cervical spine because, uh, for example, in conditions like uh, Friedrich's ataxia and vitamin E deficiency, even though the patient is at presentation quite ataxic, you might notice that there is act- the, the bulk of the atrophy that has taken place is, in fact, in the upper cervical cord and that the cerebellum itself is relatively well preserved. So this apparent discrepancy can be quite helpful and, again, might point you in the right direction. Incidentally, vitamin E deficiency is another, again, very rare, but nevertheless treatable uh, form of um, ataxia. Mm. There are also some other signs with, uh, with some of the rarer forms, like with r um, this autosomal recessive spastic ataxia, uh, where you get um, some pontine. Uh, there are some pontine abnormalities, which are recognized also some abnormalities of the uh, corpus callosum uh, and the superior cerebellum. And also very recently, uh, with another, uh, perhaps not so rare form of recessive ataxia associated with mutations in the SPG7 uh, gene, which is classically a form of recessive uh, or recessive uh, spastic paraparesis. But nevertheless, in when they present with ataxia, uh, it it, it does. These patients seem to also present commonly with ataxia. uh, They can have a, a high signal in the dentate nucleus. So there may be subtle clues that point to, again, might focus you on the right diagnosis, uh, even though uh, the scan is superficially passed off as being normal. So always go back and have a look at the scan, uh, particularly with an enthusiastic and well-informed neuroradiologist, please. I, I, should, I should just have mentioned, uh, although this, he would be unusually uh, old, uh, uh, don't forget Wilson's disease, um, because that, again, is, is one of these uh, biggies. Uh, which you, which you mustn't min, um, miss, uh, must miss, uh, but probably presenting under the age of 40, actually. Uh, yeah. But do think about uh, having the celloplasmic check. We haven't mentioned gluten, um, which is a kind of a slightly controversial area. I, I think um, there are certain centers where it is commonly diagnosed, uh, for example, in Sheffield, where they have a um, huge uh, sort of research interest in this entity, Within the sporadic ataxia, they think that up to a quarter of patients may have gluten ataxia. This is uh, difficult to diagnose, not least because of about half of the patients that they see uh, don't have a, an enteropathy, uh, so they're purely presenting with uh, cerebral ataxia. Um, and um, so, and the testing is also somewhat controversial because the testing that you and I would do in a, a DGH or a non, uh, you know. Uh, Gluten uh, research centre settings are very much focused towards enteropathy end of the spectrum, looking at the transglutaminase antibodies and so on. Whereas it's actually the anti the crude anti antibody that is more indicative of this. But of course, it has very low specificity. So you've got again, you've got to put it in the clinical context. And if you have a sporadic case with a with a sort of a, a, an appropriate history, um, uh, and you don't have an alternative. Uh, cause, do think about getting the anti checked um, uh, and um, you might um, be in a position to offer them a treatment of sorts because gluten-free um, diets do seem to, at least in the Sheffield group's experience, seems to retard the progression of the illness. Yeah, that's good there system. is going to be a more specific anti-TG6 antibody available shortly so that may uh, this, uh, this may be a space to watch
0: in the future that yeah. we make. It. That's a a good tip. Um, So moving on with the the case, so further questioning in the clinic, uh, the patient tells you that he's one of four siblings and that his older sister, who he rarely sees, has been diagnosed with neurological disorder, which was affecting her walking, but no clear or specific diagnosis seems to have been made. His mother, who's now in her 80s, has no known neurological problems and his father passed away at 53 of a heart attack and a lot of the initial screening investigations for reversible causes of an ataxia are negative uh, or normal, and an MRI scan has been done and is non-informative. So I guess this is a, a tricky position to be in. In general, you see a lot of neurogenetic cases. Is it uncommon that uh, perhaps a, a genetic history comes through in this manner where, where no clear diagnosis has been made before? Yes, yeah, not at all uncommon. And I think this is, um, again, where, um, you know,
1: you, you know the, the field is really interesting because even in the absence of a family history, it's not uncommon uh, to find that there is, in fact, a genetic cause. And there's a variety of reasons for this. Obviously, recessive um, uh, causes um, might well mean that uh, there isn't an affected sibling. Um, but also even with the dominant forms because of this uh, uh, anticipation effect where particularly with paternal transmission, the uh, expansion in the father may be at a threshold that's just below um, he he is likely to present during um, his normal lifespan, whereas because of this uh, massive expansions that can sometimes take place, Classically, in uh, Scar Seven again, um, uh, you you might find that the uh, that the, the child uh, pre- presents perhaps in middle age or even younger. Mm. And in this particular case, I noticed that the father did die at the age of 53, so he may not have manifest clinical features prior um, to to um, to his death. So, um, but as it happens, there's a helpful clue here in that the uh, the, the there is a sister. Has been diagnosed um, with a neurological disorder. And I would, you know, one would say that in this context, it's very likely uh, that uh, this is uh, also a tax. But a practical thing to do would be, um, uh, and, and I think this again is a, is a fun bit of um, neurology and working in this sort of uh, environment where the, you're, you're, you're very lucky to have um, in all parts of this country and, and the world, indeed, people who think like us and who have this inquisitive approach to medicine um, because what it, it's a simple uh, email or a phone call to your friendly colleague to say, um, look, I've got this person, I, I understand that you've seen uh, his sister, w- what did you make of the case? And very rapidly, um, you, you might uh, be able to pool your thoughts. And I, uh, I do this quite a lot in my clinical mm. practice with colleagues all over the country, having these conversations. And it also means that you can pool your resources so that one group may have already done uh, a dominant ataxia screen. So you can come in and then do the recessive genes and so on. So in this kind of, um, um, the the other issue is that um, whilst one can't neglect the clinical data that you have acquired up to this point, we know that in this field, um, uh, genetic causes are quite important. Um, as, a, as a cause of ataxia. So because of that, um, I think um, if you look at neurodegenerative conditions in general, uh, comparing this, say, with Parkinson's disease, you embark on genetic testing at a much earlier level so that you know in that uh, hierarchy of testing, um, genetic testing probably comes in at sort of level two or, uh, and perhaps even before the level three, the high-tech investigations. Which is again uh, something I think that's a little unusual for trainees, because you kind of expect gen- genetic testing to be the sort of the last port of call. But in in this field, particularly, I think there's probably a case to be made for pushing it higher up the mm. um, the pathway. Uh, and um, actually, with the availability of um, next generation sequencing, I think we will probably. Uh, I mean, I don't know, I don't want to predict the future, but say in 50 or 100 years' time, we'll probably be almost an office-based um, test where you do uh, a, a genome alongside perhaps the MR scan of the brain um, mm-hmm. because um, uh, that this in itself might get to an answer uh, as rapidly um, as pursuing a lot of blood tests and so on. Yeah. But in a sense, our priorities have changed, John, because I think we now... We are almost at a stage where we have a genetic uh, or a, a, a perhaps a selection of genetic explanations being offered to us from the lab. And we've almost got to now go back to the patient and look at the laboratory test to see what makes sense. Which of these entities is most likely to be culpable? Mm. And of course, that, that knowledge is also not complete. Um, uh, I would say that uh, with some of these variants of unknown significance, there's possibly even up to about half of them, we still wouldn't know. But nevertheless, it may be that we can sift through the genetic data based on the clinical data that we've already acquired and then come to diagnosis. To almost coming at it in a different direction. I suspect that that's how things are going to evolve in the future, actually. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, if you have got uh, 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 say an RSAX gene, a uh, spastic ataxia gene um, variant. Um, you may want to go back and look at the patient and say, right, what did I find when I, you know, that very first examination I did? Were the reflexes brisk? Were the planters upgoing? Um, and similarly with the recessive, uh, uh, another recessive uh, uh, gene mutation um, uh, with uh, canvas. If if you uh, did find an abnormality there, are you looking at someone who's irreflexic? Have you got the characteristic uh, vestibular uh, uh, irreflexia when I tested them and so on. So you're almost kind of approaching it from reverse. Can I just, there are two other, and and also actually the imaging data also um, are important to bear in mind. Again, with, I mean, these are sort of um, almost sort of um, minutiae, but uh, we know that there are different patterns of um mri abnormalities associated i've already mentioned the friedrich's vitamin e issue where the, cere- uh, the, the, the the upper cervical cord tends to be preferentially affected but even with the dominant ataxias with scar one and three for example there's a combination of brainstem stem and cerebellar atrophy whereas scar six for example there's only um uh, it tends to be a purely cerebellar atrophy pattern so again even with the genetic Uh, data to hand, it's always worth going back and going back to the clinical data and the imaging findings and see, does it make sense?
0: Hmm. Um, Um, And are there any, I I guess taking a a step back from the specifics of this case, uh, when you're working up a a genetic cause of ataxia, are there any kind of general rules or any general principles you have that help you subdivide uh, the potential causes for them?
1: Yeah, I think you would. Um, I suppose it's a bit like having suspicions. Um, you know, a detective approaching a murder case. You know, they would know who the most likely culprits are. You know, is it the is it the butler? But you would also just want to keep keep your you know the, the options open. Keep the secretary um, and the driver in the frame as well. You don't want to complete it. And I have to say, uh, although um, it's always very you know, it looks great at meetings, you said, right, I came to this dialogue. But more often than not, there's an element of surprise and serendipity in these issues. Um, again, as uh, for all those cases where I've been reasonably confident about the genetic diagnosis, there are as many cases where I've been taken aback and been mm-hmm. surprised by what I've had to find. One practical issue um, uh, that I, I think this is still the sta- um, you know, the current situation is that when you're Doing the, and, and this again informs our approach in most centers in the UK, is that um, our technology, even though um, it is advancing rapidly, um, with these large scale uh, 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 rearrangements, um, so for example with the triplet repeats and so on, our technology with NICS um, sequencing isn't smart enough to pick these up. So, as a result of that, we generally tend to look for Friedrich's ataxia, but also the scars um, uh, and uh, the, the fragile X premutation as a first off. And in fact, canvas turns out to be one of these repeat disorders as well. So, I suspect it's, I'm not sure how good um, its capture would be mm-hmm. in due course um, in, in, a, in a panel. So, I think it may be that we will need to have a um, a sort of a two-pronged attack where you look for these uh, large-scale rearrangements first, um, and then once you've done that, then uh, go on to uh, perhaps whole genome sequencing, exome sequencing, or, as it is most in the case at the moment, looking for candidate genes in a in a panel.
0: Okay, so so in a case like this, in clinical practice, you would you would perhaps test a few more specific things first of all, before going on to do a, a a more of a general panel of cerebellar ataxia.
1: Yeah, as I said, not least because of the technological limitations yeah. at the moment, kind of forced to look for that. But it's not an unreasonable thing. Uh, so for example, in the dominant ataxes, these um the, the, the ones that would be captured, scars one to three, six, um, seven, as I said, would stick out because of the maculopathy. Um, uh, Twelve and seventeen, and they probably cover about fifty percent of the cases in the UK. So it's not an unreasonable way of approaching it.
0: Yeah, and then um, finally, to to finish off, something that's often, I guess, not talked about with ataxia is actually managing this as a symptom. Um, are there any tips that you have uh, for how you can manage this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think this is a real, um, again, a very sort of you know, it's mythology, isn't it? I mean, all, there's a sort of general uh, sort of belief um, that this, uh, there's nothing that can be done. So uh, I, a large portion of my time in the ataxia field is is spent countering uh, this uh, prejudice. Uh, there's a huge amount that one can do. Um, I think your involvement, your the energy um, and the enthusiasm that you are displaying in trying to diagnose the cause of the ataxia itself is important for the patient and their families. Um, I uh, have the privilege of being one of the medical advisors for Ataxia UK, which is one of the patients, uh, which is the uh, patient support group um, uh, for uh, this group of disorders in the UK. Uh, and uh, one of the things you hear from uh, uh, from people very very commonly, even though they know that there isn't a cure or, or, uh, available for for, for a on the whole they really are desperate to know what type of ataxia they have. This seems to be really, really important. I, I guess in the very least, it gives them some closure, but also I think establishes hope for the future, that mm. if not, they, their, their progeny will be in, in a position to benefit from advances that are made. So I think that in itself is really important. But inevitably, if you, are, if you show that same level of enthusiasm and involvement, inevitably you get drawn into managing their day-to-day symptoms. And uh, when we've looked at this, what emerges is that most of the concomitant symptoms that accompany attacks, like spasticity, pain, bladder problems, um, and so on and so forth, they are all things that we can, with our general neurology skills, are very well able to handle. So if you, um, uh, like, all, uh, uh, as, like any general neurologist would be seeing patients with, um, with spasticity, all the same drugs that you would be mobilizing in that situation, baclofen and the txanides, you know, these can also be used in patients with ataxia. Similarly, the same principles that govern bladder dysfunction can be extrapolated um, in managing um, the the bladder symptoms that accompany uh, ataxia. Mm -hmm. The other principle, and and I think something that really governs our practice, is our our sort of um, capacity to bring together Uh, allied specialities in multidisciplinary teams. Uh, So even though you may do very little talking at these meetings, perhaps contributing 5%, you are there acting as a sort of catalyst, bringing together the the necessary skills um, from your colleagues. Uh, And again, acting as a linchpin, being able to mobilize multidisciplinary care for your patients is absolutely crucial. And of course, in time, uh, getting palliative, palliative care involved. So there's a huge amount Uh, That can be done. Quite apart from the fact that you have probably made the, um, you've been able to eliminate the treatable causes of ataxia, you should be um, really well positioned to make a real difference to your patients. So please, um, if you don't take anything away from this podcast, um, please remember that there's a huge amount that you can do for your patients and your patients and their families will be truly grateful for the contribution you've made.
0: We like to leave trainees just with kind of three tips um, after each episode. Are there three tips that you'd have um, about how best to approach this kind of patient?
1: Yeah. So um, it's really to, re- to reiterate uh, when you are, um, because as I say, um, it, it is, it can be bewildering, uh, I hope a little less so after this, um, but nevertheless, because it is somewhat bewildering when you first encounter someone, don't sort of panic. It's a bit like, I remember when I first went from a membership, someone said, you know, when you ask to look for a, you know, to elicit some sign or something, you know, just sit back, take a deep breath, and have a nice look at the patient, smile, and just collect your thoughts. And, and one of the, I think, the key things, as I said, focus on the age of onset um, and the rate of progression. I think if, uh, if nothing else, I think these two features should immediately give you some sense of where you should be heading. Uh, the second thing uh, I would say is to. Um, Is again, a point that I've already made, uh, which is to not only get the MRI scan, but have another look at it. So um, have have a look on on the PAC system at the scan carefully. Um, And if you even have a sort of a a, a faint suspicion, um, obviously, like all of us, look it up on um, Neuropedia, but also then go and speak to um, to your uh, neuroradiologist and say, do you think this is entirely normal? Are the um, you know wh- what do you think about this? And thirdly, um, is the last point I made, which is that um, don't always think what can I do today from this clinical encounter that will make life better for my patient when they leave. And and trust me, there's always something to do. Uh-huh.
0: Great. Well, thanks very much for your time there, and um, it was really really useful talking through that with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me and I hope I haven't confused you all.
0: (laughs) Thanks. See you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.